Amen. Go ahead and be seated, church. And as you are, let's go ahead and grab those Bibles, turn them up, open them up, uh, go to James chapter 5. As you do that, let me just say as we begin how thankful I am for this morning, how excited I've been to be able to gather back together to, to worship with you guys today and, and to be able to bring this message today. It's been an awesome week for me personally, and I'll just share a little bit of that with you and why. No, it's not because we have a contract on our house in Kansas or anything like that. I said, no, it's not because of that. <laughs> so we don't have a contract on a house in Kansas. No, no, listen to my words. <laughs> but at the beginning of this week, last Sunday afternoon, Joel and I took a, a little road trip to a, a beautiful land of Odessa, Texas. And so uh, this week, the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention held its annual meeting out in Odessa. We're at First Baptist Church of Odessa. Joel and I were there. Uh, Randy and Denise, uh, they were there as well. That was their home church for many, many years. And so we got to see all of that. And, and to be among the, the group of leaders that were represented in that gathering was just absolutely amazing. Over 900 different representatives from all the churches from across the state were there. And we got to hear some amazing messages and stuff. And so, so you're aware, like Joel and I, when we go to these things, we positioned ourselves on the second row, right in the center of everything, so that we could take it all in and get the full experience and everything. But to be able to hear the different messages and the different encouragement that was brought, I was just, I was just thrilled with it all. Uh, Adam Greenway gave a message. He's the new president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. For years, that's my school. That's where I got my master's from. For years and years, I've done everything I can to try to distance myself uh, from that school uh, because of just multitude of reasons. But to, to hear him and to see him and to listen to his enthusiasm and excitement, it gave me great hope and encouragement for, for life on the Seminary Hill. And then we also got to hear from Paul Chitwood. Uh, he's the president of the International Mission Board. He brought an amazing message. Anyway, it was just so encouraging to spend that time with, with those uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we came back on Tuesday, and then Wednesday we had this conversation through uh, our app with our son that's in Africa. He's been there uh, since almost two years now. Uh, he's finalizing his plans to to come home, and so that was encouraging to see those things starting to uh, come to together, and uh, by the end of the day, we realized that uh, Logan will be returning home on March the 1st of 2020, and so I'm just less than now four months away from seeing my oldest. I can't wait. I miss my boy so much. I'm so incredibly thankful for what God's doing in his life and hearing about that journey, but there's just nothing that takes place of that physical presence and connection with your kids, and I can't wait to see him. My wife is going uh, to Africa later this year. Her and our, one of our other children, Tyler, they're going uh, after Christmas, and they're going to be able to spend 10 days with him in Mali. And then uh, our exchange and our compromise with all of this was, I'm going to send her with Tyler, 
in exchange for that, then I'm going to be the one to, to see Logan when he, when he comes back because he's got to fly into uh, North Carolina, Charlotte. He flies into Charlotte. He's got to spend a day or two there, uh, somewhere close to there, doing an initial debriefing with the organization that sent him. And so I'm working on plans now so that I can be there. He's not watching this, so I, I feel safe to say this in front of you, uh, that, he, that I'll be there when he gets off that airplane in Charlotte. I'll hang out with him, and then he and I are going to take a road trip from Charlotte to Texas via Missouri so he can see his brother and sister in school. So we're going to just take a road trip together and spend that time, and I can't wait. So those of you that are praying for him, keep on praying that he finishes strong. He's a bit emotional uh, now. Uh, his students are starting to realize that he'll be leaving soon. And they're saying some encouraging things to him. And he's like, how am I ever going to be able to leave these people? And uh, so God's going to have to work through that and in that. And so your prayers for him are, continue to be appreciated and welcomed. With that being said, we find ourselves in James chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse number 7. Remember that James is writing to a suffering church. And he writes to this suffering church. He also gives them both encouragement as well as uh, he, he gives them warnings or instructions to follow. And so we're going to begin in verse number 7 this morning. And it starts off and it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, James uses two different words in Greek for patience in his letter uh, to the church. Uh, the first one was found back in James chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4. It's translated in the ESV as the word steadfastness. And that word steadfastness means to, to stay the course or to endure. Now here in our, in our text this morning in, in verse number 7, we have it translated as be patient. Here it's more personal because he's talking about how we relate to other people. It means to be patient in bearing the offenses or the injuries that other people inflict upon us. So the emphasis here is on patience with people. The emphasis in chapter 1 was with patience with your circumstance or your situation. And so Paul picks up on the same type of teaching and thought when he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 14. And he says that we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient, with them all. So, so realizing the glory that awaits us when Christ returns should help to motivate us to patiently endure the circumstances we face or the op oppositions that we encounter in this life. Paul also writes in Romans chapter 8, verse number 18, and he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You should understand that the anticipation of our Lord's return should stimulate within us great patience and persistence in being obedient to the Word of God. And so back to verse 7 in our text. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. 
you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the early rain fell in Israel in, in the months of October and November. And those early rains were important because they helped uh, soften the ground for, for planting. Then the latter rains, those would occur in March and April. And that, that would help to give strength and growth to the crops immediately prior to the spring harvest. And so just as the farmer waits patiently for the early and the latter rains for his crop to ripen and fully develop, so too believers must patiently wait for the Lord to return. I want you to notice why. Why does the farmer willingly exercise patience in the process, especially in that time frame between the early and the latter rains? And we know the reason why because we see in the text, see how the farmer waits for the what kind of fruit of the earth? One person is falling in their Bible. Good for you. The precious fruit. The precious fruit. The farmer is patient because the fruit is precious. The, the harvest is worth waiting for. Like that should stimulate within us a connection and understanding on why God is so patient in delaying His return to the earth. Scripture tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's exercising great patience because the harvest is worth waiting for. And so keep in mind that, that the farmer doesn't just sit around and do nothing in between the rains. He's constantly at work, and he's working the field, working the land in anticipation for the harvest that's to come. And so James doesn't tell the suffering believers, hey, now that you're a believer in the midst of your hard hardship, then just put on a white robe, go find a cave to hide out in, and then just wait for, for Christ to come back. He doesn't say to hide out. He doesn't say to, to stop doing anything. In fact, throughout his letter, he repeatedly says to keep on working, keep on doing. And as you're working, as you're laboring for the work and for the will of God, then to do so with great patience. Patience in your circumstance and patience in dealing with other people. This is a constant admonition throughout the letter that James is writing. And the ultimate realization is that we all have a job to do. We have a role to fulfill. We all have a mission that we've been given by our Heavenly Father. And we often refer to this as the Great Commission. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. As you're turning there, I want you to see this and to hear it afresh and anew today. Jesus is speaking, and Jesus came and He said to them, here He goes, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. I'm sorry, I should have waited. Matthew 28, verse number 18. Thank you for opening your Bibles. There. And He says, Jesus came and He said to them, all authority in heaven 
and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's our assignment. The Great Commission is what we refer to it as. It's the Great Commission. It's not the Great Option. We're all commanded. We're all to be a part of this. We're to be making disciples. Here's something that I learned just this morning. That word go. I'll give you a brief little Greek lesson. Thankfully, Logan's not listening, so he can't correct me if I'm wrong. No, but the word go is an aorist verb tense in the Greek language. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Listen to what it's saying. It means that it expresses action without an indication of its completion. Expressing action without an indication of its completeness. Go. Wherever you're at, as you're going, keep on going everywhere. What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be making disciples. How do we make disciples? Well, we do so by baptizing them and and by teaching them. So every child of God has been given an order from the King of Kings. And we're to be making disciples. It's not an option. It's an obligation. It's who we are and what we're supposed to do. And so we're supposed to be working towards the fulfillment of what Jesus called us to do. Listen, as long as we're alive, we have a mission that needs to be accomplished. We have a purpose that has to be fulfilled. We have a role that we all need to step into. Listen, if if you think that you're done with ministry and it's for somebody else, let me help you understand, as long as you're alive, you ain't done yet. If you didn't have a role, if you didn't have a purpose, if you didn't have a mission, then you would become a believer, dead and in His presence. But you're still alive. You're still here. You need to step into that realization that you have an assignment from the Father. So we have, we've been given the Great Commission. He tells us what we're supposed to do. And praise be to God, He also tells us how we're supposed to do it. If you have your Bible open, just go to a few pages to your left. Go to Matthew chapter 22. We refer to this as the Great Commandment. Matthew chapter 22, verse number 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he has silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we've been told what we're supposed to do? Make disciples. Make disciples. We baptize them. We teach them. And how do we go about doing that? By loving God and loving other people. That's what we all share in common, those that believe. We we have that assignment. 
and we're told how we're supposed to do it. Now, if we would just practice uh, the great commandment, then we would stop arguing and grumbling and complaining against one another, against things that don't matter. Back to James. Because notice his transition in, in verse number 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, I think we've lost the, the urgency or the anticipation of our Lord's return. I don't think we're fully living as though He can come back at any moment, and yet the realization is He very well could. He's standing at the door. I mean, think of it this way. Jesus, the judge, is standing outside the door. The door is a representation of the door into his courtroom. And he can turn that handle and open that door at any moment to come back. Be ready. Be prepared. Be active and engaged in doing what God's called us to do. So James tries to encourage his readers to be patient in the midst of their suffering. Some of them are suffering because of the circumstances. Some of them are suffering because of the mistreatment of other people. And so he gives a couple of examples from the Old Testament that should help to serve as an encouragement to all of us. Look at verse number 10. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, a Jewish congregation would understand this simple reference that Jesus makes to the Old Testament prophets, and they would have understood completely what James was trying to communicate to them and how he was trying to encourage them. Now, we, on the other hand, we might need a little bit more help in understanding the connection. Because what encouragement can we currently today, what encouragement can we receive because of the example of the prophets, I would say for one thing, we can be encouraged by realizing that the prophets, although they were in the will of God, yet many of them suffered. In the will of God, and yet they suffered. They were preaching in the name of the Lord, and yet they were persecuted. Which means we must not ever think that just because we're being obedient to the will of God, that that's automatically going to bring a life of ease and, and pleasure into our world because, quite frankly, it's usually the opposite that is true. Why is it that those who speak in the name of the Lord are often those that suffer persecution at the hands of other people? I think, this is my personal opinion, I think it's partly so that our, our lives can back up our message. It's one thing to proclaim something. It's another thing to live through something while still proclaiming the Word of God. And so I think the testimony of a faithful, godly individual who remains obedient and seeks to glorify God in the hardships of life, I think that gives a strong testimony to a lost and dying world. I'll give you an example in Scripture. If you're in James, you'll just go to your left a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 11. Now this is not on the screen, so, so find it in your Bibles, please. 
Hebrews chapter 11. Now, I wish you had time to unpack all of this. Apparently, so did the, the writer of Hebrews. Because they write, and what more shall I say in verse 32? What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of, and then he gives some examples. Time would fail us to be able to unpack all of these examples this morning. But I will help point you into the direction so that you can read up on it for yourself. Especially some of these that you may not be familiar with. He says, for time would fail me to tell you of Gideon. Hopefully you, you know of that story. If not, you'll find it in Judges chapter 6. Or, or, or Barak. Read about Barak in Judges chapter 4 and 5. I think most of us are familiar with the example of Samson. And then you have Jephthah. Oh, Jephthah is an interesting individual. He was a mighty warrior of David. He was born of a prostitute. Uh, you can read his account in, in Judges chapter 11. And, and then there's Samuel and the prophets. Look at verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, all of this is positive. All of this is encouraging. And then he says some. Notice there's some. So some, not all people of faith experience consistent miracles and victories in their lives. Some were ultimately tortured and died. He says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And then he says others. There's a whole other classification. Others, uh, uh, there's another group of unknown, I think it's referring to unknown men and women of faith who were not delivered from their trials. Yet God honors them. He says some were tortured. I'm sorry, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Man, uh, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of, of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in the caves of the earth. I would say that I think it takes more faith to endure a trial than it does to escape a trial. And here, here's the reality. If God is glorified by delivering His people from a difficult circumstance or situation, then that's what He's going to do. But if God sees fit for Him to be glorified in the suffering, in the hardships, in the trials, then He's not going to deliver. We must not automatically conclude that the absence of deliverance of difficult circumstance means that it's a lack of faith on the other person. We live, we ought to live in the mindset it's all for the will and for the glory of God. So James is trying to encourage his people that are scattered about undergoing harsh treatment. Be patient. 
Don't give up. Hang in there. And then he gets to the second example. Go back to verse number 11 of chapter 5 of James. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. I think this is interesting uh, because we're going back to the word steadfast. That steadfastness is the word that's used in in James chapter 1. I think the example that it's going to give us, he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. We heard of the example of Job who was uh, faithful to God in the midst of circumstances. Not people. I think there's a difference there, but maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, he says, you, you heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So through Job we clearly see that you cannot persevere unless there's first a trial in your life. There's no victories without a battle. There's no mountaintop without a journey through the the valley. Turn with me your Bibles. Let's go to Job real quick. I want to take a time just to read this this morning. So we'll do a little bit more reading than what we usually do. That's all right. If you don't know how to find jokes, I don't hear pages turning, go to Psalms and just go to your left. Hang in there with me. Come on. Job chapter 1. It's kind of like walk you through this journey of Job real quick. Verse number 1. There was a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. Uh, There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And skip down to verse number, let's go down to verse number six. We see where Satan's allowed to test Job and says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You understand what's happening here, right? A righteous individual. And Satan's basically saying, God, he only loves you because of what he has. You take away what he has, and he's not going to love you. He's not going to be faithful to you. He's going to curse you. And so God says, all right, you have access to all of it. Just don't take him. And then it says in verse number 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. 
and the Sabians uh, fell among them and took away and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then again, while he was yet speaking, there came another. Man, this is all being relayed to Job in a matter of like two minutes span. And he says, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. In the matter of a few moments, Job lost everything except for four messengers who came to report the news to him. And in verse 20 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I mean, that's a powerful response. But it's not even over. Because then chapter 2 picks up, and again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro. You hear the pattern? It's the same thing that's happening. Look, verse 3, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So taking away all the things that belonged to him wasn't enough. And so Satan thought, well, give me access to him physically. I'll make him so miserable that then he'll curse you and deny you, forsake you, betray you, whatever. And so the Lord says, all right, you have access to my servant, only don't take his life. In verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, I don't know how she plays into all this, but never mind, I'm going to keep my sarcasm to myself. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I can't imagine losing everything. Holding fast in integrity to God. Being struck 
physically only have your wife come along and say, just end it. Of course God would be dead. And he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Man, this is such a powerful book to read through because the next thing that happens is Job has three friends. Three friends come and they come and they sit with Job. They sit with him for a week and they sit with him in silence. The text says in verse 13, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. He had awesome friends for seven days, and then the eighth day happened, and it all started to fall apart. Now, now to their credit, these friends did some really good things. Man, man they came when, when their friend was suffering. They, they empathized with their friend. They spent considerable amount of quality time with their friend who was suffering. Their problem was, at the end of that week, they began to project or to try to correct Job and tell them why he's enduring what he's enduring. They're trying to give answers to Job, and they weren't told the answers, and so they're speculating to Job, questioning him. And so we have this long back-and-forth dialogue that happens from, from, from Job chapter 3, Turn to the end, to Job chapter 42. See how we just skipped all of that? Yeah. We get all the way to the end. And then in verse 42, uh, verse number 7, it says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, He says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So the Lord's anger burned against them because they said they had a message from the Lord while not having a message from the Lord. Be very careful when you tell other people, the Lord told me to tell this to you. You better make sure it's a message directly from the Lord. And so, it takes 42 chapters for the purpose of Job's suffering to be revealed. And only at the end, at the 42 chapters, you see his confession in verse 5 and 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Look, Job as an example is a great reminder for us. Whatever you are walking through is not the end of your story. And in the end of your story, God will reveal to His compassion and His mercy. So go back to James. I'm almost done. Go back to James. So verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the law, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So how does Job's story end up playing out? 
Well, well, God restored unto him twofold all the things that he possessed. God gave him again seven sons and three daughters. I think God's answer to the complaining wife was to give her another ten years of pregnancy. Just a thought. Then we have verse number 12. James says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear. There are places in the scripture that talks about the purity of the language that comes out of our mouths. This swear here is not the equivalent to curse words. So I'm not giving you a, a, a pass to, to curse. I'm just trying to help you understand that the swearing here that's being addressed is uh, the, the taking of oaths. So he's, what he's saying here, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by, uh, any, uh, or, or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. There was a practice that was happening that people were trying to find loopholes in, in, in their honesty. And so they believed that they could swear by certain things and not bring judgment on themselves by God if those things that they swore about were lies. So they would swear on, on earth, or I swear, I promise, in the name of the earth, I promise in the name of a tree for us today, I I promise on the grave of mine, fill in the blank. And what James has repeatedly done throughout his whole letter was that he has emphasized that a person's speech is one of the most revealing glimpses into that individual's spiritual condition. So don't be frivolous about your words. In other words, in the midst of it all, in the midst of your circumstance, in the midst of how you're being treated by other people, be a person of integrity. May your yes be yes, and your no be no. You don't have to swear on any other thing because your life is lived in such a way that when you speak, the automatic default for an individual is to believe what it is that you just said. Jesus picks up on the, the same type of command. Back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in verse number 33, again you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform uh, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So in order to, to make a victimized person believe that they were being told the truth, people would swear by heaven, they swear by earth, they swear by Jerusalem, they swear by their head. That, that phrase doesn't even make sense to me. But they swear by everything, but never by God. 
And so they falsely believed that since they didn't say the Lord's name, then they were free to say whatever they wanted to another person without condemnation. But what they failed to understand is that everything belongs to Him. You can't swear by something else without drawing God into it. So James is saying, look, be honest, be open, be truthful to your character. And in the midst of those difficult days, in those hard seasons of life, in the midst of great opposition from other people, mistreatment from others, watch what you say. Watch how you speak. May we all understand that whatever journey we're on right now, God has a plan and He has a purpose. So turn to Him. Seek Him out. And whatever it is that you're doing, seek to glorify Him in the process. And if God sees fit to deliver you from the circumstance or from the oppression, then glorify Him. If God sees fit to keep you there a little bit longer, then glorify Him in the process. And all we do, may we seek to honor and glorify God. And may we all now clearly understand that because we have life, we have purpose. Let's get about the business of what God's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are, the multitude of ways that you have blessed us. God, help us to live a life that, that seeks to glorify you all the time. You have brought us all together for a purpose. Each one of us has value. Each one of us has a role that needs to be fulfilled. So God, help us to understand our role. Help us to understand how you have equipped us so that we can all be engaged in sharing the good news of Jesus. In this time of invitation, Father, I pray that spirits would yield themselves unto you that your spirit would bring conviction into our lives that we would make decisions that we would be appropriate today that you might be honored and praised it's in christ's name i pray amen